The Going Up, Going Down podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello, it's this week's Going Up, Going Down podcast brought to you by The Athletic. We cover the EFL and like the rest of the sporting world, things are somewhat up in the air as we go to record this week. There'll be more details later on in the podcast about the coronavirus and as we record the current update of how it will affect our football. Otherwise, business as usual, the same features that you've grown to know and hopefully love. We'll be previewing the biggest games ahead of the EFL weekend. We'll be checking in with some news on Not The Back Page, specifically uh, a situation at Charlton. We're looking in focus at QPR's Aberi Eze. Uh, George has a hot take up his sleeve and I've got a story to tell you, taking you back to 1984. <laughs> I'm Ali Maxwell. George Ellick joins me on the line from Cheltenham. He is, ironically, the Luke Varney to my Alfie May, a pair of Cheltenham strikers. And we're going to get straight into the biggest game in the championship this weekend. A reminder that you can get 40% off an annual subscription to The Athletic site and app by heading to theathletic.co.uk forward slash EFL pod. That's E-F-L-P-O-D. All one word, that's 40% off The Athletic annual subscription. So many podcasts, so much written content. Get involved today. But now it's time to get into the weekend preview. Yeah, I think only one place really to start in the championship this weekend. The fixture that really leaps off the page for a few reasons. It's a derby game, a West London derby. Third versus fourth in the championship, under the lights, wind whipping off the Thames, of course, at Craven Cottage, even more so now with the stand closest to the water being redeveloped as we go. Fulham drew at Bristol City last weekend, won all, probably a fair result. They've won their last two home games to nil against Preston and against Swansea as well, teams sort of gunning for their playoff Spots. Of course, Fulham are looking upwards at the automatics, something of a long shot at this stage. They'd need either West Brom or Leeds, you'd think, to slip up fairly substantially and they need to keep winning their own games. And it'll be easier said than done. This is a good Brentford side. Last Saturday, they ended a run of five games without a win, albeit four of them were draws. They tonked Sheffield Wednesday 5-0. Um, and Fulham at Craven Cottage been an interesting season for them at home. Uneasy, I think it's fair to say at times. If you look at the half-time scorelines, they've actually been 1-0 down at home at half-time more than any other result at Craven Cottage. Six times out of 19, one down. Five out of 19, one up. And four times at 0-0. And I think that uneasy uneasiness which starts on the pitch, gets transmitted to the fans in the, in the ground and then goes back onto the pitch, if you see what I mean. That There is a sense that if you execute the right game plan as an away side at Craven Cottage, I think there's a feeling you can do a job a job on them. Um, in fairness, in terms of results, they've won 12 home games compared to only six away. But interesting, they've also lost more games at Craven Cottage than they have away from home. So a different prospect, Fulham at home, to away from home. Brentford, as for their away form, it's not been brilliant this season. Eight of their 11 losses have been on their travels. Clearly, this is a game between two of the most technical teams in the championship. Plenty of talent on show, certainly at the top end of the pitch, but all the way through, really. Both teams playing 4-3-3, technical sides who, who, who enjoy having the ball, who do well with the ball. And I think it'll be a really well-balanced game. Certainly worth watch this one on Friday night. 
Fulham certainly very patient, to use a kind word, when passing it around the back. I think a lot of fans, a lot of observers would like to see them uh, play more vertical passes, try and penetrate teams a little bit more. And that is, has been something of a, a sticking point this season. And it's always interesting between two sides who enjoy having the ball, who want the ball, to see who ends up with more of it. I think Fulham will have the lion's share of possession here. And I think Brentford will be happy with that. I think that they will not press them too high. I actually think they'll let the centre-backs have the ball, possibly even Arta, the, the deepest line midfielder. I think that they'll be happy maintaining a, a, a solid defensive structure in between them and almost inviting Fulham onto them because Brentford, although they're known as this team who in possession are, are very technical, a lot of short passing, create a lot of chances. I think with that front three, it's actually on the break in space with space for them to, to move into where they are most dangerous. So I think I think Brentford will look to try and, and create transitions, counterattacks for that front three. The best part of the match, though, the real main event for me, the battle between Alexander Mitrovic and Ollie Watkins, the two premier goal scorers in the championship. And I use that word specifically because two guys that are second tier strikers with Premier League futures. 23 goals from Mitrovic, 22 for Watkins. Mitro, of course has won full of so many points this season with with big, big goals. He is uh, a key, key goal threat uh, for this Fulham side, the key goal threat. Uh, and I mean that in the sense that sometimes his teammates have struggled to chip in with the amount of goals that, that you might fancy, that you might need in support. But he also works hard for the team. This, this fiery temperament that Mitrovic is known for has been channeled, I think, this season into performances rather than histrionics or, or, any, or any strops that we might have seen in the past. He's got 17 with his right foot, six with his head. Watkins, much more spread out. Eight right foot, five left foot. Eight head and one other, which I love. I think that was one that he he chested in. Um, Watkins has played almost 300 minutes more. So Mitro with a, a much better minutes per goal ratio. But Watkins has had 30 few shots fewer. So he needs fewer shots to score his goals. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, I think it's going to be a close game. <laughs> Sitting on the fence as always. Just so difficult. <laughs> so difficult to pick a winner when you know full well what team strengths are. I think one all is, is probably the, the correct score here. And that's what I'm going to predict. I feel like we always predict one alls, but uh, normally, I mean, there's a reason why it's always the most common scoreline. So, you know, we're doing a good job there. In, in League One, <clears throat> I was looking through the fixtures early this week and I really struggled to pick one fixture that I thought was game of the weekend. So I have chosen seven. I've chosen seven fixtures to preview here um, because looking through the League One table at the moment, for anyone who doesn't follow it closely, we are in a very strange position where second down to eighth is split by just three points. I mean, due to goal difference, even if Wickham win and Rotherham uh, in second lose this weekend, they can't overtake them, but they can draw alongside them despite currently being two points, two places outside the playoffs. So, it's a good time now just to have a look at this chunk of teams. Look who they've got to play this weekend as well, because pretty regularly over the last few weeks, there have been a lot of teams in that group playing against each other in big six pointers. We previewed most of them on the Going Up, Going Down podcast, but this time they are all playing against sides with very little to play for. Maybe a couple of teams towards the bottom of the, of the division who need wins to give themselves a little hope of staying up or a little hope of, uh, of getting into the playoffs, but realistically teams with very little to play for. So I'll start at second, go down to eighth. I'm not going to do the in-depth previews, obviously, but just give a little bit of insight into the state of those teams, the teams they're playing against. So first up, we have Rotherham in second position. They're on 62 points, so two points clear of the clutch of teams on 60 points with a goal difference of plus 23, which is significant at the moment, along with a couple of other sides, giving them basically an extra half a point on the field. But they come into this game against South End in not great form. Uh, they were the side at the top end of the table for a while. They're now five points behind Coventry, but just one, sorry, two points in those two draws in the last three games. And the last game, they lost 3-1 away at Rochdale, one of the surprise results of the season so far. Not many people saw that coming, but fans will think that this home game against Southend is a chance to get back to winning Rays, and they are probably right, but I would urge some caution. I would say that any ideas that Southend are the whipping boys of this division, maybe they're a little bit stronger than they have been at previous times. They've only taken 19 points from 35 games, but Sol Campbell seems to be getting a bit of a tune finally from this set of players. Uh, they beat uh, 
uh, beat Bristol Rovers, sorry, 3-1 in their last game. That was their first win in a while, just their fourth win of the season. But we've seen in a couple of other games against teams at the top end of the table that they are no walkover. Uh, they went to the Kassam Stadium to play third place Oxford and lost that game 2-1. But it took a very late goal from Matt Taylor to win it. And whilst a lot of fans of Oxford thought their team played poorly, I think Southend just made the game very difficult for the home side to play. And so this is, in my book at least, no walkover for Rotherham. And it wouldn't surprise me if Rotherham's winless run went on and another shock defeat, which would bring the teams below them right back into it as well. And in third place, it is Oxford uh, on 60 points. So currently two points behind Rotherham and they host MK Dons. This looks like an easier tie for Oxford, given MK Dons' abysmal away record. Under Russell Martin, they've certainly improved at home, but they haven't won away from home in a very long time indeed. Uh, Oxford's concern must be uh, the fatigue they are undergoing with the fixture list. But finally, they had a, a, a midweek off this week. So should come into this one a little bit fresher. Although it has to be said against Shrewsbury last weekend in that dramatic 3-2 win, they were very, very poor early on in the game going 2-0 down. It was, it was only when Shrewsbury went down to 10 men that they were able to get back into the game. So it should be a bit of a home banker this due to MK Don's away form. Uh, and I think Oxford probably will scrape through. But signs maybe that uh, the procession of five wins in a row could become six, but it was, wouldn't surprise me at all to see that dip sometime in the next few weeks. Uh, the third game is Portsmouth at home to Accrington. Stanley, uh, Pompey again, winless in their last two. They're also on 60 points alongside Oxford as well. So two points behind Rotherham. And this is a game that they should really hope to be winning. Uh, Accrington have lost three of the last four games. Don't come into this with much to play for. Don't come into it in very good form either. And I think we're likely here to see Pompey return two winning ways as well. And they need to do so if they're going to hold on to those hopes of automatic promotion. Uh, Fleetwood are the other team really purring at the moment. And they drew, of course, with Pompey two all in midweek. Uh, in what was a significant game. And I think probably a draw didn't really help either side. Uh, and was, you know, the likes of Oxford, Rotherham and Peterborough would have been watching that game. Very happy to see them, uh, them you know, sharing the spoils, as it were. And this is a really interesting one to keep an eye on because they go away to Gillingham. And everyone knows that Gillingham's manager is Steve Evans. Everyone knows that Fleetwood's manager is Joey <laughs> Barton. Two men who, uh, yeah, I have a feeling there'll probably be a handshake before the game and possibly not one after the match because uh, this Do you think Gillingham's- there's any... Do you think there's any uh, potential for them to get on really well? Just real sort of game-recognising game type. Uh, just two blokes who really, really know how to wind other people up. I think it would have to be an, an incredible nil-nil draw for that happening, with, with both teams defending resolutely and attacking with flair, but unable to find that winner, which leaves both managers happy with the point, but not necessarily um, ruining the fact that they dropped two. Uh, but no, I think basically it's not going to happen. We're probably going to see some fireworks here. This is a Gillingham side who are currently on 51 points in 11th. And I'm sure that their players, their fans and Steve Evans are thinking that if they can just win this game, uh, they will still have another eight games to go the season. And that should put them within about four or five points of the playoff places. And given that they're decent at form, although they are winless in three off the back of a good run, you'd think that Steve Evans is probably harbouring some hope uh, that they'll be able to squeeze, the, make that late run into the reckoning. And they've only lost eight games this season. Coventry and Fleetwood, the only two sides that have lost fewer games than Gillingham. So by no means an easy game this. And uh, off the back of two draws in a row for Joey Barton's side, it wouldn't be a massive surprise to see this being a draw as well. Uh, Peterborough are next. And it always surprises me seeing that Peterborough are as low as sixth. But then you remember they're only one point behind third. Uh, They've got a goal difference of plus 28. So they really, really are the team who, despite being one point lower than that clutch of three sides on 60, uh, they are. They certainly have that extra half a point in terms of goal difference because the likes of Sunderland and Wickham probably aren't going to catch up with them in that regard. And they come here off the back of a win as well. An Ivan Tony inspired win, that is, over Portsmouth. You and I disagreed on the Not the Top 20 betting show about this one. I went for Portsmouth, you went for Peterborough, and Peterborough were comfortably the better side and deserved everything, uh, all the praise that you gave them pre-match as well. And it just goes to show how important Ivan Tony is coming into um, the side after a two-match suspension, which coincided with a really poor run of form after scoring four, game, four goals in consecutive games. He returns to the side and they beat one of the best sides in the league and take a couple of points off a promotion rival. This will be much easier. They go away to a Bolton side who are on 14 points currently. Of course, they had that point of deduction, but I think we're now seeing, given Southend's improved performances, Bolton are the weakest team in this division and some murmurs of discontent about Keith Hill and his management of the club as well at the moment. So this should be a win for Peterborough. Two more to go. Sunderland and Wickham both have away trips to Blackpool and Burton. They are the two sides currently outside 
the playoffs. But as I mentioned, just three points off the automatic zone. Uh, Sunderland, this is a tricky game for them. Mm, uh, Blackpool both tricky much, games, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Blackpool much improved under the new manager on the weekend, put in a really decent performance. And despite having little to play for, I think that was a sign that they are not going to be a side who roll over towards the back end of the season. They'll want to really push on and end the season well. And the same can possibly be said of Burton Albion, who Wickham travelled to. I mean, Wickham's away form is very poor indeed. Uh, and Sunderland, of course, losing midweek to Bristol Rovers in a result that I certainly didn't foresee at all and a really poor performance as well. Two sides in Sunderland and Wickham who are struggling away from home, who come up against two sides who, you know, in terms of not playing teams, they could take points off. Probably the two of the hardest teams to go to at the moment, I would say. Uh, and they are well aware that whilst at the moment they're still in touching distance of that top six, you know, a loss given some sides above them playing some relegation strugglers, uh, losing to either of these two sides could quickly see them go the way of the likes of Ipswich and be uh, suddenly there could be a gap between the top six and them. So there's my game of the weekend in League One, seven of them. Uh, and I, if I was going to say who I think will be good weekends for, I would say probably Oxford, Portsmouth and Peterborough. I think Rotherham, Sunderland and Wickham could be the three to struggle. Hey, George, in League Two, I want to talk about two teams that we haven't discussed yet. And the reason I say, hey, George, like that is because you're, you're actually hundreds of miles away from me right now. And I need to retain your attention, make sure that you're still across this, because I want to talk to you about Grimsby against Carlisle. And it's really in the in the framing of two managers who have come into these clubs during the season and have made an impact. As we've touched on before, the bottom half of League Two has been a strange place this season because it hasn't felt like there's been much of a relegation battle at all. But there have almost been a few teams in the bottom half, nowhere near really the relegation battle. They seem to be suffering from some sort of ennui that they're not really part of any sort of interesting uh, battle either at the bottom or the top because 10 teams in the bottom half have sacked their managers this season and some of those teams have improved a fair bit since then some of them not much and and both Grimsby and Carlisle I think fit the bill of of two teams that seem to have improved in probably to slightly different extents uh, Ian Holloway of course is the manager of Grimsby now the, the only primer you need on Ian Holloway's uh, impact at Grimsby in the short term is the brilliant uh, interview with him and piece on the athletic site by Michael Walker. Um, a great read. And look, the, 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 the initial positive impact came off the pitch. Uh, he demonstrated his commitment, Holloway, by purchasing £100,000 worth of shares in Grimsby, which means he now owns 4% of the club and sits on the board. He's literally bought into it. Uh, and that has reflected well on the pitch. He's breathed new life into the team. 14 games, seven wins, 24 points from those 14 games. Much better form than what they experienced previously. He boosted the squad in January, called on his old pals from Blackpool, Billy Clark and Elliot Grandin, who, who were with him as part of that incredible journey that Blackpool had under Holloway, uh, as well as getting two players from Sean Dyche at Burnley, under 23 players, Driscoll Glenn in the left-back and Benson in midfield have both taken really well to, to League Two football. That's a loan that appears to be working out for all parties, which is always Good to see. Um, the possession stats since Holloway's taken over, it does reflect what he's always said, that he wants his team to play with freedom. He wants his teams to have the ball and uh, and to have the majority of it. He, he's tinkered a little bit with the exact formation and structure, 4-3-3 at times. He played three at the back in the last two uh, league games as well. In terms of interesting players, I think you have to highlight Matty Pollock. He's a centre-back, just 18 years of age, son of former Borough and Man City midfielder Jamie Pollock. Uh, and at 18, he's, he's played a fair amount of football at centre-back for Grimsby this season, not starting every game, but easing his way into senior football and looking pretty comfortable at League Two level, which is no mean feat for someone of his age playing in that position. Charles Vernon has really been the attacking star, a direct pacey winger with, with an eye for goal. They're up against Carlisle, Chris Beach's Carlisle. Not a huge amount was known about Beach when he took over Carlisle, never had a senior management job before and, and didn't have much fanfare necessarily. I think some of the fans possibly fairly underwhelmed, but he has coped impressively with his first senior management gig. Uh, the way that he handles his media duties, he appears very level-headed. The way that he talks about his team, whether they've won 
or lost. And actually, draws have been a key feature. He's had 18 games in the league. They've won five, lost five, and drawn eight. So the five games they've lost being all against teams in the top seven, I think that's acceptable for, for a, a team of Carlisle's budget and stature currently in League Two. Uh, they haven't lost to anyone outside of the top seven, and that's a positive as well. Well clear, Carlisle, of any sort of relegation battle, which had threatened to involve them early on in the season. The main improvements have been defensive organisation and resilience. To start the season, Carlisle were an absolute pushover. Some of the goals they were conceding were frankly embarrassing for for a professional football team who spends their time training uh, and trying to avoid things like that. Um, you know, it hasn't been magnificent by by any stretch, but the January window went well. That was another positive. Uh, a lot of good players brought in. Coyote on loan from Rotherham up top, a, a handful. Elliot Watt, who's on loan from Wolves. He's he's always been a talent at youth level, Watt, and he's adapted to league football very well indeed. Uh, and a couple of other signings, Hunt, Anderton, Patrick and Lewis Alessandra, all now part of this Carlisle first team. So you have to say, in terms of bringing players in in January, they did so well and, and, and they have helped to shape this improved Carlisle side. Uh, they have got a couple of players that I think could and maybe will play higher. Harry McCurdy, who is um, he, at his best, he's excellent. Really technical, small, center of uh, low centre of gravity, good off the dribble, coming in off the left flank or playing number 10. But he's in this quite weird situation where his character has not necessarily ingratiated himself with, with Carlisle fans at all. He's got a bit of a frosty relationship with the fans and he's been in and out of the team. But he has got the most goals and the second most assists this season. Nathan Thomas is a winger with a deadly left foot. Again, probably like McCurdy at the moment, showing enough consistency to really merit playing at a much higher level. But if he could add that, if he could add a bit of durability as well, then both of those guys could play higher. I, I think it's an interesting game. I, I think, based on what I said about Carlisle's improvements defensively, I, and I think they can make this quite awkward for Grimsby. I think most likely a draw, but I'm not saying 1-1 this time. I'm saying a full-on nil-nil. So hopefully a bit of interesting context surrounding this game but I'm predicting maybe not one for the neutrals <laughs> right now it's time for George to put himself out there to tell us something that he thinks that he also thinks will not be popular this is the hot take debate George I know that you've had one brewing for a while what are you talking about this week a positive spin uh, I think and my hot take debate is that if you're looking at the manager you know the EFL manager of the season you're looking at some pretty obvious candidates, Mark Robbins at Coventry, Paul Warren at Rotherham, Master Bielsa at Leeds, Richie Wellens at Swindon, David Artell at Crewe. And they are, of course, at the top end for a reason. But there's one manager who is getting a bit of stick at the moment. And I've even seen a few, well, quite a few fans, especially a couple of weeks ago, saying they wanted him sacked. And I just want to put my hand up and say that I think Steve Cooper is doing a magnificent job at Swansea City. They might currently be in 11th position. They might be a side who only got relegated, you know, nearly two years ago, 18 months ago from the Premier League. But the, the idea that he is underperforming at Swansea and the idea that Cooper out should be a thing absolutely baffles me. Uh, it's frustrating on Twitter that if you type Cooper out into Twitter, most of them are disgruntled Forest Green fans. But I found a few tweets, which I'm not going to read out to embarrass them because they are a couple of weeks ago, but fans saying, this is not good enough. Seven wins in 21 Cooper out, he's clueless, he's out of his depth and all of this stuff. So let's just strip it back for a second and understand why this is the case. Swansea started the season absolutely brilliantly. And this was on the back of losing their three key assets in the summer. Last season, they finished just outside the playoffs in the top half of the championship. That was enough to get Graham Potter a job in the Premier League with Brighton. The performance that he took, a Swansea side who were basically dismembered after their relegation with very little uh, reinvested into the playing squad and the job that he did to get them there to keep them safe on not a huge budget was seen as so impressive that he'd made that step that very few managers have made when you take your go from a championship job to a uh, to a uh, Premier League job and since then in the summer you and I spoke a lot Ali about what the expectations should be for Swansea and I think we kind of came to the conclusion that staying up was probably the key here. They lost Dan James to Manchester United, a player whose impact is maybe a little bit overblown because he wasn't really in the squad week in, week out until January. But in the second half of the season, when Potter Swansea really clicked, he was a key part of that. 
Ollie McBurney was, of course, the, the massive, massive loss. He was the key one. He was the goal scorer, the talisman. And he, you know, the way that he uh, led the line for Swans, he was so key to the way that they played. But if we're looking at Steve Cooper coming in, he is taking over from my manager, who was so popular there, for achieving, uh, I think it was 11th place finish, 10th place finish. He was coming into a side that lost their key goal scorer, that lost their teenage um, you know, youth team product, Manchester United, of all people as well. And he wasn't really given any funds with which to strengthen. Looking at Cooper himself, this is his first club managerial role. I mean, we talk about experience being important, and I'm not necessarily sure that that is true. But as a guy who's coming in to this job on the back of managing England under 16s and then England under 17s, under 17s with, with, you know, big and famous success, you have to surely cut him a little bit of slack and give him a little bit of time to understand what this role entails. He's only 40 years old. Uh, he's coming into this fairly blind, taking over a squad he doesn't know particularly well. And he has, as of right now, done more with them. Exactly this time last year, Swansea were on 30, uh, 47 points from 35 games in 15th position. They're now on 53 points from 37 games. So even if they won the, those two games, as it were, in hand, they would draw alongside. So even by the mo- most pessimistic view, Steve Cooper has this Swansea side at least on par with Graham Potter's side that was so well judged. And if you, The reason for this weird perception of Cooper underperforming, I guess, comes from the start of the season that they made. On opening day, they beat Hull 2-1. They then drew away at Derby. They then beat Preston. They beat QPR. They beat Birmingham. And they beat Leeds away from home. And they were top of the league, obviously, at the end of August. What is the reason for that upturn in form? There are basically two possible reasons for it. Either Steve Cooper is a managerial genius doing a fantastic job, or more likely, it's just a bit of a purple patch at the beginning of the season and variance was always going to mean they were going to fall away from from that position. And this is something that we talk about a lot and uh, maybe it should have its own hot take debate. But managers and players being judged uh, on the back of short-term success is ridiculous. If Steve Cooper, if Swansea had been in 19th after that run of fixtures and they and he had then got them to where they are now, he would be being lauded as doing a brilliant job and possibly even touted for the same kind of jobs that Graham Potter was in the summer. You look at the personnel as well. Looking at the, if, if you look at the players that have played 20 or have made 20 or more starts so far this season, you've got Woodman, Grimes, Selena, Roberts, Byers, Fulton and Roden, who are all 25 years of age or younger. If you add Wilmot, Danda and Cabango to that as well, who are all teenagers or in their early 20s, and then the low knees as well, and Gallagher, Brewster, there's the pun, Gallagher, Brewster and Gwehi, you've got a, a collection of young players who've never really performed at a higher level than this before, who are improving week in, week out. And they're being judged against, you know, a, a, a five-game spell at the beginning of the season. At the top end of the, of the pitch, Andre Ayew has been a massive positive for them. Without Ayew, it's hard to see how they'd be in the position they are in now. And we all think of Ayew as being, you know, a class above this level. He's a player who should be doing this. If you look back at Andre Ayew's last few seasons, he hasn't played to a level anywhere near this for about five years, even at, at different levels. He scored 12 goals this season. Looking back through his last few years uh, in professional football, he hasn't scored that many, I think, think since 15, 16 for uh, for Swansea themselves. Two seasons at West Ham, he barely made 16 starts, scoring six and three goals. Last season, Fanabache played 30-odd games, scored five goals. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, except for a couple of games against the big boys, I can't imagine the Turkish Super League is of much higher quality than the Championship. So Cooper himself deserves credit for getting the most out of a 30-year-old Andre Ayew, who, of course, is being paid an absolute fortune at Championship level. But as we know, that by no means uh, suggests that the performance levels will be high. So this is just a case of me, you know, sometimes I'll be happy to slam um, a team who are maybe punching above their weight. But this is just a case of saying Swansea have a manager who has shown he can get the best out of certain older players, such as Ayu, who's come into a side decimated in the summer and is at least performing as well as they are. He's brought in such exciting youth players on loan, such as Gallagher and Brewster, which will only be a sign of things to come for Swansea. If I'm looking at any club in the EFL being run, being run well from the top down with a manager who shows that he is going to be capable of doing things the right way, playing the right kind of football and taking the club to the next level, it's Steve Cooper. So just do not let a five, you know, there's no reason why this Swansea squad on paper 
or in terms of its budget should be any better than where they are now. So don't let a five a, a five game run at the beginning of the season swear you. Steve Cooper is not the hipster's choice, but just maybe if, if you take out all the teams who are going to get promoted this season and you choose an EFL manager of the season, taking those guys out in terms of sheer overperformance and, uh, and and just doing a decent job with what he's been dealt. I think Steve Cooper deserves a lot of credit. Yeah, I, I feel a lot more strongly about Steve Cooper than I did before. Um, and you're going to look very smart when Swansea sneak into sixth spot and then upset the odds in the playoffs as well. So yeah. well done, George. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com. You have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com slash going and pay the postage of £4.95. And if that wasn't enough, as a listener of The Athletic Podcasts, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver you a case with a different theme. So far, themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand, and many more. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, and a beery snack is chucked in too. Just go to beer52.com forward slash going to get your case free. And don't forget, right now, going up, going down listeners, get two extra free beers. Heading into Not The Back page, George, there is, well, there's one really key news story at the moment, isn't there? Yeah, coronavirus is obviously going to dominate the news um, in, in and out of sport over the next few weeks. Uh, Matt Slater has written a brilliant piece uh, on The Athletic called What Happens If The Season Can't Finish? Coronavirus and Football Explained. It basically covers every aspect of possibilities of bans on crowds, of whether or not pubs will be able to show it, if you'll be able to watch it on games on iFollow. So I recommend um, getting onto it and using it. Uh, and so I'm reading it right now to, to find out everything. A couple of lines that I just thought were quite interesting. Um, he spoke to Andy Holt, the owner of Accrington, Accrington Stanley. Um, a nice line from, from, from Andy Holt, always good for a line, is he says, my advice to my 75-year-old mum is stay well clear of tightly packed crowds. I can't tell her that whilst at the same time not telling our supporters. And I think that kind of drives into the crux of this issue is that we all know that we shouldn't be getting into big crowds. We all know that going to a football match isn't ideal or going to the pub and watching it isn't great either. But there's also a massive issue in terms of the, you know, what happens if these games are cancelled, what happens if the season isn't finished in terms of financial issues for EFL clubs especially. Um, so make sure you read Matt's piece. Uh, it's insightful as to what we can expect over the next few weeks. But we can guarantee you that here on the Going Up, Going Down podcast, we'll continue to churn out this content, whether or not there are fans at the games. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah, outside of the coronavirus, there's also some goings on off the field and it's Charlton. A lot of people will have seen quite the commotion uh, with regard to Charlton over the last few days. It boils down to a dispute between Charlton's majority shareholder, Tarnoon Nima, who in theory bought the club off Roland Duchatelet a few months ago. The dispute is not with Duchatelet, but Nima's dispute is with the chairman that he himself had appointed to run the club, Matt Southall. Uh, the Syrian businessman says he will suspend his financial backing until Matt Southall is replaced as chairman. And he's followed it up with various accusations about how Southall has spent, spent club funds. Now, the problem, as Louis Mendes has reported, is that Nime was set to be the, the, the big money man, really, behind East Street Investments takeover. So his falling out with Southall, that's now raising questions about who will actually fund the operating costs at the Valley, about whether he can or will uh, really maintain Charlton's costs as a football club. Former owner Duchatelet still owns the club's training ground and the stadium, the Valley. And now East Street Investments, the, the company that took over, said that a dealer had been agreed for the purchases of those assets within six months of their takeover. But now, potentially without Nima's funding, it's it's... It's very unclear and very concerning for Charlton fans as to how the remaining directors 
can come close to affording the costs without seeking new investment. So it, it's a dispute. It's all still a bit up in the air. The supporters trust of Charlton have released a statement saying we are extremely concerned that Southall and Nima are at loggerheads over the future of the club and fear this will lead to a messy and potentially protracted legal dispute. The meeting we had has done nothing to change our view that the club is in crisis. We thought it was all over once Roland was gone, but it's very clear that this is far from the case. So plenty to sort out at Charlton. Uh, just when we thought that the sun was coming out in terms of the off-the-field situation at Charlton, uh, the clouds are gathering once more, which is a real shame for the fans. Now it's time for the In Focus section. Last week, we mixed things up by going with Jude Bellingham, the Birmingham superstar, 16-year-old. And we're going to go to another player in the championship, one that we are equally excited about, Aberi Eze. Uh, George, you were especially excited when we decided to do this. What is it about this player that really captures your imagination? Five years older than Jude Bellingham, which is weird to say, but he's... Uh... He's the player at 21 years old who, if I had to choose any player currently in, in the EFL who could just go and play for any side at the top end of, of football and would make an impact immediately, it would undoubtedly be Eze. Uh, he's 22 in the summer. A bit of background on him before we talk about him as a player. He was released from Millwall back in 2016, uh, which I think must be a decision that whoever made at Millwall will uh, surely be cursing for the rest of the time because what an asset he would be to any club. Uh, and he'd actually secured himself a job at a local Tesco's uh, after that release, thinking that was going to be the end of his professional career. But Chris Ramsey saw something in him and took him to QPR. And it was in 2017, so a year later, he went on loan to Wickham Wanderers under Gareth Ainsworth. And that is where the, his career really kicked off. He was brilliant there for the first half of the season, showcasing his box of trips and his eye for goal as well. And he ended up going back to QPR in January because he made such an impact at Wickham. Uh, Wickham ended up getting promoted that season. He played a big part in their form in the early part of it, but he went back to QPR and went straight into their side and has basically been ever-present since coming back in January 2018. Uh, last season, I guess, was his coming-of-age campaign, uh, but as a, as, as a player last season, started showing signs of what he's all about. A player who's comfortable coming in off the left-hand side, comfortable in number 10 as well. His key skills being, uh, his, as I said, his kind of box of tricks. He's a player who can do pretty much anything on the ball. He's a very adept dribbler, despite not being necessarily too tall at five foot eight. He's big enough and can carry himself physically. So he's able to, when he's running with the ball, shrug off defenders. The, the speed at which he can turn and shift the ball is something that you don't see very often. I mean, he's, in terms of his dribbling style, at times he looks very similar to Jack Grealish in the way that he's able to shift the ball uh, inside and out without defenders really getting near him and able to turn away in tight spaces into space as well. And that's what makes him so hard to defend against. If you stand off him, he will drive at you. He's got the passing and create, you know, he's got the creativity and passing ability to pick that pass. And if you close him down, he is so, so adept at shifting the ball past you and then moving on into that space. But last season, we started to see this. We started to see that, uh, that level of performance, not necessarily there the whole time, but just those flashes of brilliance. I remember I went last season to go to watch Stoke against QPR at uh, the Bet365 stadium and there was a two-all draw with Eze getting both assists and he didn't do a great deal in the match except getting those assists but the two balls and the way that he put them in were really, really impressive and there was talk I remember about this time last year of the possibility of Manchester United being in for Eze and a couple of other sides at the top end of the uh, Premier League but in the last few months of the season he really dropped off. His performance levels were not good. He was going missing in games. And eventually he ended the season with maybe a few people wondering if what we'd seen was just a bit of a flash in the pan, a player who had that ability to do good things. But realistically, once you found him out, uh, maybe wasn't the force that we expected. But under Mark Warburton this season, that has been proven to be so far off the mark. Uh, he's added a consistency to his game. His output is so high. At the time of recording, He's played 37 championship games, eight assists and 12 goals compared to last season, three assists and four goals. Consistently, week in, week out, he is the best player on the pitch in the games that he plays in. He plays for QPR side, who are doing well under Warburton, uh, kind of in mid-table, about six points off the playoff as we speak. Bright or say Samuel uh, plays off the left-hand side with Eze in the middle, and those two link up very, very well and cause opposition defences all manner of problems. And it says a lot that QPR, despite being a mid-table side, are one of the best 
attacking sides in the division, especially from open play. I think they're in the top three for goals scored in open play. And part of that is because of Eze. And the final thing, I mean, I've spoken about him stylistically, a bit about his background as well. But he is just the kind of player that every fan wants because he plays football with a smile on his face. He plays the way that we all dreamed about playing when we were younger. His willingness to take players on, his confidence on the ball. He, you know, he's not just a show pony who'll whip out tricks here and there. He's someone who uses his ability to pull off those tricks to good effect. He's just a player who I am so excited to see move up, which will surely have him. His contract is out in 2021 at the moment, so we're sure to see him leave the club in the summer. I'm praying that somebody takes, uh, you know, he goes to the right club and the club who's going to nurture this amazing talent he has. Gareth Southgate, if you're listening, please can you do something to make sure that his international future is secured to England. He's played for England youth teams, but Nigeria's, the head of the Nigerian FA, has made no secret about the fact they've had many, many meetings with Eze and his parents to try and persuade him that his future lies playing for uh, Nigeria. But as an England fan myself, the idea of watching a very Eze playing for England for the next 10 years, I mean, I've got a spot, I've got a smile on my face just saying it. And he plays football with a smile on his face as well. He's a player that I adore watching. And um, yeah, if I can have to, if I had to say to any one who didn't watch much championship football, which player from the championship right now will go right to the very top? No question in my mind who I'd say it would be a Bere Eze. The only thing is, if he does commit to Nigeria, there's potential for them to, for the next decade or more, enjoy a diamond midfield with Wilfred Ndidi at the base, with Peter Atebo and Joe Aribo either side and Eze in the number 10 role. And if he's not going to sign up for a career in England, uh, sorry, <clears throat> If he's not going to sign up for a career playing for England, then I, for one, would be thrilled to watch that team uh, every international <laughs> break. Uh, uh, as always, we've had your input, guys, on social media. And it's fair to say this is a player that captures the imagination, not just of QPR fans, but pretty much anyone who has seen him play. Blades Analytic, whose opinion uh, we really do rate, says one of the most comfortable and talented players I've seen at this level could find space in a phone box and has the touch and ability <laughs> to create separation. Uh, he's got vision, creates, draws two to three defenders to him at all times. Technically great, physically brilliant, elite talent. Julius, a QPR fan, says, in my time watching QPR, he's second only to Adele Tarapt in terms of natural ability. Now, remember that Tarapt had the greatest individual season the championship's ever seen with 20 goals and 20 assists. So uh, it's, not, it's no shame to be second to Tarapt. Uh, remarkable intelligence, awareness and decision-making. So as well as all the skills that we've talked about that light up yeah, exactly. uh, any, any ground, it's an addition of robustness in the last year and the mental side of the game that he seems to have uh, demonstrated a sort of elite ability for. So he, he's someone that opposition fans are constantly saying, the best player we've seen play our team uh, this year. The QPR fans saying a complete joy to watch and support. Uh, and it's the player that we will be waving goodbye to, I think it's fair to say, this summer. Although we don't know the destination and we shall be very sad not to watch him week in, week out in the EFL. Yes, uh, this is the part that we really enjoy. And this is where... We, uh, we look, we have a nostalgic look back at some of the weird and wonderful things that have happened in the EFL, in the English Football League. This time it is up to Ali to provide us with the story. I know you've been working on this. I think you, you started working on this at midnight uh, last Friday night, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, after we'd been uh, on Sky Sports. So Ali, you know, you never stop working. You never stop thinking about the listener. And I'm excited to know what you've come up with. Yeah, there's there's a, an interesting sort of adrenaline that you get post show when you've done a bit of a, a bit of sky or a bit of quest on a Friday or a Saturday. Find it very difficult to sleep, so it's a good time to do a bit of research because that is how I like to spend my free time. Uh, and this is what I've come up with for you this week, George. Uh, I want to take you back to 1984. The season is the 84-85 season, and I want to talk to you quickly about the Welsh Cup at this time. This is Wales's <laughs> premier cup competition, the FA Cup, if you will, uh, for Welsh teams. And uh, just quickly, George, uh, was there, to your memory, a European tournament around this time specifically for domestic cup winners? Oh, yes. And what was that tournament called? Are we talking about the Cup Winners' Cup? The Are Cup about... Winners' Cup. Okay, good. I know there was the... also another couple of weird cups, but I was hoping you were going to go for the big one. 
No, this is the obvious one. The clue's in the name here. No intertoto. This is cup <laughs> winners. Now, although the Welsh Cup is clearly a Welsh competition, some English clubs, mostly those from border areas like Shrewsbury, Hereford, Chester, they were invited to participate in this tournament. However, in the event of an English club winning the Welsh Cup, they were not allowed to progress to the European Cup Winners' Cup for that victory. Instead, the best-placed Welsh club in the competition would take the European place. So, at this time, the Cup Winners' Cup, it's a straightforward tournament, and it's rather good fun. 32 teams, no qualifiers or anything, just 32 Cup winners from across Europe, straight into a two-legged knockout format. And in 84-85, some of the teams involved were Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Porto, Celtic, at Ballymena, of course, of Northern Ireland. All the big guns Obviously, were there. Obviously, yeah. But in the previous season, 83-84, the Welsh Cup had been won by Shrewsbury Town. And they, in winning that, had beaten fourth division Wrexham in the final. Wrexham, a Welsh team <laughs> playing in the English league system, as they do. And what that meant was Wrexham would be entering into the 84-85 Cup Winners' Cup. Uh, it wasn't the first time they'd been in it which is remarkable. They've actually got quite a storied history, Wrexham, in the Cup Winners' Cup, which I think a lot of people won't know about. So I wanted to pick out the most memorable <laughs> occasion. Now, fourth division at this time is League Two, as we currently know it. Wrexham were towards the bottom of the fourth division this season. So this was by no means a good football team. This wasn't even a good Wrexham side in terms of comparing this Wrexham side to some of their, their, their better sides. Who do they get drawn against in the first round? It's Porto. Porto of Portugal. The beaten finalists in the previous Cup Winners' Cup. They lost to Juventus the season before. They're one of Europe's strongest sides, Porto, at this time. Uh, I'll run you through some squad members. Fernando Gomez is their leading goal scorer. This is the last year of a three-year period where Gomez scored 118 goals, which is an average of around 40 goals a season. They also had a very famous player, Paulo Futre, or Futre. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. Portuguese is a tricky one sometimes with pronunciations. Futre was a, a world-class talent. He burst onto the scene at 16. He was likened to Maradona, similar in terms of, of profile of a player. He had a magnificent first decade of his career from 17 to 27 with Porto and then with Atletico Madrid. He then fizzled somewhat uh, through injuries. But we're talking about a guy who came second in the Ballon d'Or just two and a half years after Porto drew Wrexham in the Cup Winners' Cup. They also, I love this, had Mickey Walsh, who was an Irish striker uh, who had two prolific spells in his career. One was with Porto and one was with Blackpool. So I'm not Love entirely it. sure how <laughs> Walsh ended up uh, in Porto. But he was... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. He just got, he has to be close to the sea, otherwise he simply mm. will not perform. Anyway, so I tell you about those players to just set the scene. There was plenty for manager Bobby Roberts to prepare for, and it's a two legged tie. For Wrexham, well, they're starting 11. Parker, Wright, Williams, Salathiel, King, Kay, Cunnington, Rogers, Edwards, Steele and Horn. All the big names of this fourth division Wrexham side. The first leg, George, is at home at the racecourse ground. And you can watch the highlights of both of these games on YouTube. Watching the video back from the first leg, it almost feels like some sort of prank video. Like Porto, understandably, are all over Wrexham from the first minute, <laughs> but they can't score. They hit the bar three times. God. I'd love to go back, watch the full game, get the uh, get the Opta guys on it and work out what the XG was. But ultimately what happens is Wrexham somehow keep them at bay. And towards the end, big Jim Steele nods one in from a wicked John Muldoon cross. <laughs> and Wrexham take a 1-0 lead back to Portugal. I mean, you cannot imagine the scenes at the racecourse ground but there's still work to do and they are still can, massively can, can you see the limbs oh you can the see the limbs they're everywhere amazing but they're massively up against it they head to porto the game kicks off in a packed drag out and it is torrential rain the, the the conditions are biblical you'd think that might suit wrexham in some way but unfortunately unlike the first leg porto do start to take their chances. They're 3-0 up after 38 minutes. The tie looks dead. 3-1 on aggregate with Wrexham needing a miracle. And then they switch off before half-time. 
two Wrexham set pieces, two goals from right back Jake King. Uh, and all of a sudden, <laughs> at half time, it's a different prospect. Wrexham are heading through on away goals, three all on aggregate. So they head into the second half. And unfortunately, the mercurial Paolo Futre scores a wonderful goal from the edge of the box. Wrexham are on their way out. Porto keep coming at them. They miss a one-on-one. There's a golden chance at the back stick. But it's still one goal in it. And one goal will send Wrexham through. So when the famous John Muldoon forays down the right, looks up and curls in a teasing cross into the middle of the Porto box, there is Barry Horn to stab it in and send Wrexham through on away goals against Porto. Runners-up in the Cup Winners' Cup last year. Wrexham are only there because they're runners-up in the Welsh Cup (laughs) and they beat Porto. It's an unbelievable story. And there's not a huge amount you can actually read up about it, but there is an interview with Barry Horn, who scored the winning goal. He'd only signed for Wrexham two months before, and he'd previously been studying for a PhD at university. And he joined. He had to leave that behind to join Wrexham. And two months later, he scored the winning goal at the Dragao. He talks about the aftermath of the game. He says it was a tradition after matches in Europe that the home team would leave a gift for the visitors. And Porto gave us a massive bottle of vintage port. As we weren't able to go anywhere for a while due to crowd trouble outside, we had a few drinks and ended up much the worse for wear. (laughs) When we arrived home, there was massive press interest. It was a national story, not just local. We were very quickly brought down to earth, however, as we played Torquay the weekend after and lost. We were awful. <laughs> so this is, this is the equivalent of Stevenage 2019-2020, beating Inter Milan over two legs and then coming home and like losing to Macclesfield or something. But obviously Wrexham are still in the competition at this stage. Then they get drawn against Sven-Goran Eriksson's Roma in the next round. Sadly, there's no such heroics this time. It's a step too far for Wrexham, but it's an incredible memory for Wrexham and their fans, for the players involved. The manager, Bobby Roberts, you might imagine, was a hero. Keys to the city. Incorrect. He was sacked before the end of the season because Wrexham were bottom of the Football League and they were worried about losing their league status. In the end, they stayed up. They didn't finish particularly high in the league, but this Cup Winners' Cup run will, will live long in the memory. As I mentioned, it wasn't the only one that they had. They were actually quarter-finalists in 75-76. And wow. they also played, they played Manchester United, although they lost 5-0 on aggregate as recently as 1990-1991. So no way. I thought it was such a, such a cool thing to discover. It's something that um, for many people would have been forgotten. Obviously not for Welsh football fans and specifically for, for, for Wrexham fans. But I would love to see more football league teams in Europe. And I think, actually, in general, the topic of a football team playing in European competitions is ripe for EFL Rewind. So I hope you enjoyed this rundown of Wrexham's Cup Winners' Cup run in 84-85. Always such a buzz to research and then deliver EFL Rewind. And that's the end of this week's Going Up, Going Down podcast. We hope you have enjoyed all the various different aspects, the various different features that we've brought you. Uh, That was George Ellick and Ali Maxwell for The Athletic. A reminder that all The Athletic podcasts, and we are by no means the only one, they are all free on any podcast platform. They are ad-free on The Athletic site. And if you'd like to sign up to The Athletic site and not just listen to the podcast, but also uh, consume all of the written content as well, including that piece that George mentioned earlier, then you can do theathletic.co.uk forward slash EFL pod. It's all one word, E-F-L-P-O-D. That will get you 40% off your annual subscription and do give The Athletic a go today. As for next week, well, clearly things are a little bit up in the air, but as George said, we're committed to bringing you EFL content via this platform and we will be doing so next week. So join us then and thanks very much for listening.